91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network. For an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts, visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcastcentral. Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where people read books and talk about them. The Mercantile Library is 182 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We are located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. I'm John Faraday, the executive director, director of the Mercantile Library. Joining us today in the reading room on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are two of Cincinnati's most rabid baseball fans, Jack Greiner and Jay Stowe. And joining us via phone from New York is Shredder Papu, author of The Year of the Pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and The End of Baseball's Golden Age. Shredder, thank you for calling in. I guess I want to start with why this book and why now? Um, actually, this book, I mean, as timely as it is, uh, can be traced back several years uh, to a conversation in Washington uh, with my literary agent, uh, Howard Yoon, uh, as he sort of probed uh, me to see if I had wanted to write a sports book. And almost immediately I said, well, yes, I thought uh, examining 1968 um, through the lens of these two men and the national game would be a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, it turns out it, it very much was. However, I will say that it ended up being a much different book than the one that he and I spoke about. Um, that version was far more optimistic and I think a little more naive. And hopefully I've produced something uh, more nuanced and uh, more intelligent than I, um, than I actually uh, anticipated uh, when I started it. Schroeder, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that you stayed on baseball um, despite the fact that it was such a remarkable year and that you got to see the year kind of through the lens of baseball, was that on purpose or did that just happen along the way? Um, it happened pretty early in the process. It, uh, my initial research sort of went far, pretty far flung. I mean, I was reading books about Eugene McCarthy and uh, researching George Romney and interviewing people um, that were close to uh, the major events of that year. And it just sort of, uh, a couple of realizations came to me. Uh, number one was, you know, if I wrote the book like that, I would end up with a half good history book and a half good baseball book. And, and um, nobody wants that. And furthermore, I mean, and to be perfectly, perfectly frank, um, if you want to read in-depth uh, in works about uh, Robert Kennedy, they're already out there. You have Arthur Schlesinger. And if you want to read about uh, King, you have Taylor Branch. Uh, my job was to understand uh, and get the baseball right. Uh, that was my number one priority. And that it happened within this year, and the, the, the events acted upon them, um, I think uh, um, addressing that, um, in a baseball context, was, was uh, then became uh, my priority. Okay, um, Schritter, sort of following up a little bit on on your point that your your focus was on the baseball, your focus was on uh, the season, and yet Jackie Robinson, who was not really uh, affiliated with the Cardinals or the uh, the Tigers, or really with with baseball very much by '68. Um, what, how did it come about that, that he played such a, a role in the book, which, by the way, I, I thought was fantastic. I, I, I'm not, that's, that's not a criticism at all. That's an observation, but I, I, I thought it was, it was great to have that reference, but I'm just sort of curious when the decision made, was made to, to include him in such a, a fairly prominent way. Well, I mean, early on in my research, I came across uh, an account of a meeting uh, that Robinson had with Hubert Humphrey uh, during this, the 1968 uh, Democratic uh, Chicago Convention, 
And then I just, my curiosity was just peaked. And as I went on, um, I found him not only an intriguing character because he is one of the, one of the, one of the great Americans of the 20th century, but seeing his role in 1968, seeing what happened over 1968, um, uh, just became fascinating for me. I mean, to a larger extent, though, I think his involvement with everything that happened that year and the fact that he was so divorced from the game itself, um, he was a man very much in exile from the very thing that made him famous, I think sort of went, went to the point of baseball not being part of the culture or lagging uh, or following the times rather than leading the times. Um, and I wanted to sort of drive that, that point home. You know, uh, um, as much as I want this to be a, a, a baseball book, it has to address the issues that were going on. And for me, Jack was my way in. Um, uh, he was a man very much uh, in decline uh, uh, physically. And so many bad things happened on that year. And yet he was called again and again at, uh, to be there, to be there to... Uh, um, with the King family following the assassination, to be there with Hubert Humphrey as he campaigned, um, and he ended up going and going to the 1968 World Series uh, and sitting through what was a pretty miserable Game Four between uh, Gibson and McLean. Yeah, it is kind of interesting, you know. As as I get a little bit older, the the you know a 20 year period seems much smaller than it did when I was younger. You know, so when you think about it, the 68 series was only 21 years since Robinson broke in. Right. Yeah. And only nine years since the last team integrated, which was John's Boston Red Sox in 1959. So, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of – I mean, nine years is nothing. I mean, that's pretty amazing, really, yeah, when you think about it. It's just yeah. uh, stunning in, in some respect. It seemed like the culture yeah. had changed so oh. greatly in that span, that just that nine-year span of time. Uh, Schroeder, one of the, uh, there's a lot of stuff I like about this book. Um, but one of the most important things is how much you learn about pitching uh, and the difference between yeah. the way these guys pitched in, in the mid to late 60s in particular, and even into the early 70s probably, um, and, the, and the way pitchers pitch now. And I just, there was so much really cool stuff about especially, I mean, I, I am, I'm sorry to say, not really, I was not familiar with Bob Gibson until I read your book. I knew the name, I knew who he was, but I didn't, I, I think that by the time I was cognizant of following the Reds in the early 70s, I'm not even sure how if he was still pitching for the Cardinals at that point in time. But, you know, and I was also fixated on people like Louis Tiant and stuff and his amazing, uh, you know. Thank you. Uh, yes, well, I loved watching <laughs> him in, in the 75 World Series. That was amazing. But, but uh, I just wondered, like, how hard was it to dig into that? I know you've been a fan of baseball since you were, like, one year old, but how – how uh, how difficult was it to g gather that knowledge from what you call the golden age of pitching, you know, from these people? Like, Johnny Sane turns out to be this really great yeah. character in the book as well, who I knew nothing about before I read the book. And I just thought, like, my God, this guy's like a, a prophet, you know, coming to, c coming to these teams and doing what he was doing with the spinner and all that stuff that he had. Um, was I know that had to be fun talking to these people who you ended up talking to who were still alive who could who could speak to the differences between pitchers now and pitchers then. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, again, I mean, if you're going to talk about the year of the pitcher, which is known as, um, for me, it was really important about understanding pitching. <laughs> um, you know, having never played the game um, on any kind of high level uh, beyond. Uh, uh, whatever we played in, in Oxford, Ohio. Um, so in talking to these ball players, I would talk, uh, talk to them about mechanics and, uh, and baseball terms that we sort of uh, take for granted, um, like a sinker and what makes a good sinker and movement. And, you know, what, you know they talk about Mickey Lilich uh, throwing a heavy ball. And what does that mean? And so... A lot of my more interesting conversations happen with pitchers about uh, not only their training re uh, regimens, but also 
um, the variety of pitches uh, that were used, um, strategies, uh, and uh, you know, the height of mounds, how that affected them, um, and all those uh, different aspects. Um, and you're right, saying, I love John Saint. I absolutely, absolutely love John Saint. <laughs> it probably comes across in the book. And, you know, from uh, uh, sort of the early stages when his name just stopped, started popping up, I just wanted to learn more and more about him just because he's just an incredibly fascinating guy, uh, someone who we only remember because he was part of Spawn and, uh, and Saint. Pray for, for rain. rain. Yeah, right. That's um, right. Uh, this tandem that uh, pitched for the Boston Braves in the, in the 1940s. But as it turned out, he was the greatest pitching coach of his era and would go literally go from team to team, fix the team, uh, take them, you know, help them win a pattern or a World Series and invariably uh, uh, isolate himself from the manager and uh, end up getting fired <laughs> and go to the next team. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I, you know, I... I... The, the 68 World Series was the first series I really remember. I was 10 years old, and um, just for whatever reason, I, I had a vague recollection that the Red Sox and the Cardinals had played in 67, but I can, I can remember watching games, and I could remember a lot of the things that you, that you mentioned in the book, but I had literally no idea of the influence of, of Sane, uh, or yeah. that he was even the pitching coach. I mean, he really was kind of – you know, in the shadows, I think. And it's just the coverage of baseball was different then, too, obviously. I think that, you know, I think the average, and even the, the, the interested fan probably just didn't know who the pitching coach was necessarily. I, I think with the Internet and with, you know, MLB Reference and MLB Network, we just, we tend to know more about teams, yeah, et cetera. Team. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of even somewhat casual fans knew who Leo Mazzone was when he was having that great run with the Braves pitching staff, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, but I suspect that, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that, Trudor, I mean, but when you went back and looked at, you know, old magazines and newspapers, was there much written about Sane's uh, work as the coach for the team? Um, actually, there was, um, there was a considerable amount, um, and that's how I was able to uh, learn as much as I, I could. Um, you know, it started, I mean, even though he had been a pitching coach with the uh, Kansas City A's, it really started with his work with the Yankees and what he was able to do uh, in the early 60s with the Yankees. And then the Twins, uh, were, who were a very, very talented team but wouldn't, weren't able to uh, get past a certain point, brought him in at a, at a very high salary, and he was able to deliver for them. And, you know, he ended up with the Tigers, also in a situation where you had exceptional talent, especially with uh, McLean and uh, Mickey Lolich, but he, they needed someone to guide them. And that was, and, and so uh, John Thane was, was a heralded person. Um, it's interesting to note that in 1967, he was very much a person that people went to to talk uh, uh, to. Um, at least uh, in the, according to Detroit papers. But in 68, he falls in the background. And I think he was never comfortable in the spotlight anyway. Um, people would gravitate towards him because he, um, 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 he was uh, quite eloquent but, or in his own way. But um, he really wanted the attention uh, on his pitchers. And so he would do his very, very best to, to, to keep in the background while he uh, sort of did his magic. Yeah. I, um, w one of the reasons I like this book is because I, I knew a lot about Gibson growing up. Um, I knew far less about Denny McLean. Um, and he makes, I grew up in Chicago, he makes so much more sense to me knowing that he was a white guy from the south side of Chicago, which is a very distinct species of person. Um, and, 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 like, like the Oregon makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, I wondered about that. It, like, that is, like, it's a type. Mm -hmm. And he is the prototype of that type in many ways. Um, so I loved, I loved learning more about that. I was also astounded by some of these numbers. I, 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 we're all pretty big baseball fans. Right. 
but there were 339 shutouts that year and 82 one to nothing games. Like, I'm guessing the average time of games at the point at, in that season was probably like two hours and 15 minutes. Or less. Or, yeah. Those are astounding yeah. numbers. That, well, like, yeah, McLean threw 336 innings that year. Right. I, mean. that, I think that might be the yeah. baseball record that can never be broken because he had 40-plus starts. Yeah. He, he, those days are old. We will never see this again. Yeah, no, I think that's fair to say. I think that that is. I like I, the other thing. I like I, I love the cultural references. I mean, I love the way the book starts off with the Bob Hope show. I, I'd completely forgotten how like awkward and unfunny those things were. <laughs> so I just I loved uh, you oh, know yes. I loved that the book kind of started with 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 that reference and, and obviously the the mandatory Ed Sullivan appearance that uh, you know they, yeah. they had to put up with and, and do it. And, you know, although I, I get the feeling McLean probably loved it. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say McLean. I think really enjoyed his, everything, all the attention he was getting. Right, it was totally part of his character and who he was. Uh, what? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was actually really fascinating um, because once again, I had seen a passing reference to that Bob Hope show, and on eBay, I found a man from Britain who has the DVDs of every Bob Hope special ever made, <laughs> and I made, I, I talk about it in the, the beginning of the book about how absurd the, that hour of television actually was. And then, and then seeing them on Ed Sullivan, four years removed from when the Beatles, uh, you know, captivated a nation on this show, they have uh, uh, Denny McLean playing uh, the organ and then doing a duet with Bob Gibson. And in, in some ways, you, you see a medium so out of touch with, it, with the, the, the population, it was it was pretty incredible to, to find those things. Those are different times, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but think, I, I, I will say that, that Denny Denny loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think that '68? I, I was just trying to think of uh, because obviously the there is political discussion in the book. I mean, the, the the focus is baseball, but you couldn't possibly write about '68 without talking about you know, with the politics and what was happening. And I was just trying to think if, um, obviously, Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali's situation had predated 68, had preceded, but I mean, it did seem like that was the year where they uh, just said, we're not gonna be political props anymore. We're actually going to, uh, you know, be our own men and, and, and take a stand. Uh, as we needed to, and I just don't know that that happened a whole lot before then. I mean, I think to the extent athletes were involved in politics, they were more they were more kind of props than than anything else. Well, I mean, that's one of the more interesting things that I try and explore in the book because I mean, what I expected to find was um, because it's our national game, and because you know, quite frankly, the best players in baseball are African Americans. Um, you know, from Henry Aaron to Gibson to Willie Mays, gone down the line. And I was expecting to find that same sort of political involvement and passion, or or outward passion, um, that you saw at a time when when sports was highly political in in other arenas, when you had Bill Russell and you had the Olympic athletes and you had Ali and Jim Brown. And early on, when I didn't find that, one of the one of the things I, I set out to do was try to answer why and why why the game um, was at a remove from from these these things, um, you know. Because if you if you want to step back and think about it, or uh, or rather you know, go sort of sort of drill down into it, I mean, you can argue that the most politically active uh, uh, baseball player was uh, Jim Bowden, who was a white pitcher. Of it. I thought the, I had read previously about Mill Pappas's situation in Cincinnati, where he yeah. may have gotten himself traded over the uh, the Robert Kennedy, um, you know, situation, which was fascinating. Although as a Reds fan, 
that brought Clay Carroll to Cincinnati, so I mean, I wasn't all that upset with him. <laughs> 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 so, but, you know, it, it, it was kind of uh, an interesting, uh, you know, side note there that some of the guys did, were starting to break out, but I thought it was also interesting that you, you did talk a little bit about Marvin Miller and, and his influence, um, which was just beginning. I think he had come on board, was it 66 when he, when he uh, was hired? Yeah, the beginning of the 66 season, I believe. Hey, Schroeder, I know, I know you didn't get to talk to Gibson, but what was Denny like? Uh, he was interesting. I mean, he has a definite point of view, and uh, he's unafraid to say anything. His, his and, personality, therefore, has um, not changed at any all. Any kind of language. <laughs> right. So, um, so he, lived up, he lived up to his, his reputation to some degree. Uh, to some degree, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he can be both really charismatic and come across as really mean. I mean, he still holds grudges, you know, with with uh, ex-teammates, you know, basically half a century later. Um, the fact that he and Mickey Lillich still hate each other mm-hmm. um, is pretty remarkable to me. But, you know, um, I, don't, I don't blame... Um, Quite frankly, I actually don't blame either of them um, for the feelings that, that uh, they have towards one another. Do, do you, did he have a really good recall of, of, you know, these seasons that you're specifically recounting here in the book, not just 68, but even before that, 66, 67? He had a pretty great recall. Um, I mean... I just wonder sometimes, it, you know, these are, you're a, as a fan or as a writer or whatever, some of these things stick in your mind indelibly. And for the person who actually went through them, sometimes I, I wonder how, how, much is, how much really stuck in their minds because they were caught in the middle of the whirlwind. Yeah, I mean, he definitely re- remembers um, sort of the very pinpoint um, moments of that season and even the 67 season where he takes the blame for getting hurt under mysterious circumstances in the midst of the most competitive uh, pennant race in American League history. Um, and so he remembered quite a bit, but mm-hmm. I will say this is, and I, um, I, I learned this early on from, uh, people at baseball hall of fame when I was doing my research there is that the people who remember, remember the most are really the, the ones with the short careers, because for them, these were, uh, very specific, uh, points in their lives and they can think back to it and remember almost every single uh, moment of their major league career, whereas you know, if you, even though Denny had a much uh, too short career because of uh, injury, um, you know, certain things you know, um, will escape him. So uh, you know, you need to talk to those other people to sort of help fill in the gaps. Right. Can you give us an example of somebody like that in the book? I mean, There's probably more than one, but just somebody who you're like, oh, I wonder what this is going to be like, and then they turn out to be a, a wealth of information. Oh, Dick Trickwitzky was phenomenal. Um, he, and actually, I think he might have been one of the very last interviews in the book. And, um, you know, I started basically looking at the two rosters, reaching out to as many people um, as I could who were still alive or who were in uh, decent enough health. Um, and uh, Bill Dow, uh, who's a writer in uh uh, Detroit had uh, set me up with uh, uh, Dick, and from the moment we started talking, he remembered everything. And he wasn't a cup of coffee guy. He uh, was Sandy Kovacs' very close friend and remains a close friend. He played on um, pennant winning teams with the Dodgers. Uh, he uh, and then he, he came to the Tigers, and he can remember almost every single moment. And you know, has this very vivid memory of um, the Detroit riots that I feel like has never been written about before, um, in which the team goes is watching the city burn from a yacht club in Gross Point the next day. Um, a lot has been said and written about the Tigers um, in the context of Detroit um, in 1967 and 1968, um, but um, because it, they were playing as that riot that riot was going on. They were playing a doubleheader against the Yankees. Uh, and, but I had never heard that story before. And uh, the fact that he was able to remember it in such detail and uh, remember 
almost everything I asked and in, in, in such detail. That was that was really phenomenal. That is that's great when you can find people like that who've got that recall um, and give you a perspective on something. And that what a surreal scene, you know, have yeah. the tigers out at a uh, whatever at some yacht club in Gross Point while Detroit's burning, basically. It's yeah, just surreal. Well, also, I mean, it. it I mean, um, also, it also. I don't want to say it, it uh, runs counter to it, but you know, part of the mythos that's been built up around that team and the and the riot um, is built around a couple of players, Mickey Lilich, who had pitched game one against the Yankees and had to go home and went home and got called up to his National Guard unit. Mm-hmm. And then Willie Horton, who grew up on the streets of Detroit, um, going out into, this, uh, into the 12th Street uh, region where uh, the riots uh, started and, uh, and uh, trying uh, to calm people down. And so that's been talked about a lot. And but to also have people the next day living their lives as you know they they would have ordinarily right. on an off day, I found um, pretty incredible. Well, I appreciate it too. You didn't you know you you sort of took on the myth that a baseball team could you know heal a a city that's in flames. Yeah. I think that's that's putting a lot of burden on baseball. I think it so uh, it was I I, I appreciated. Your your take on that because um, it's true. You know, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, it takes a little bit more than a baseball team. Um, you know, I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe in the myth. Um, I mean, Willie Horton has this saying, and he's a lovely man about the 1968 Tigers put on Earth to to heal this city. And as soon as you start reporting, you realize that's not the case. And and that the mythology that starts getting built up, it, it got built up the moment, or actually in the very last stages of that 68 season, and just was blown up, not only through um, players over the years, but um, certainly through politicians like George Romney and Jerome Kavanaugh and uh, business leaders like William Ford. And, you know, to, again, to put that burden um, on on a, on a team that, that the idea that they can piece together uh, um, a city so racially divided and you know on the uh, and falling apart um, to me um, is not only unfair but I think is um, it's kind of uh, it's kind of lazy. Um, these are complicated issues of race and poverty and you know why these things happen and. Um, and you know if they don't get soft their baseball. Could um, I, I know it wouldn't work because they were both in the National League. But could you have written this book if it was if it was Gibson and Drysdale? But and how is it a possible book? I mean, he had a remarkable year as well, and was kind of a different guy out there. Um, would this would this book resonate at all if it was Drysdale? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I devote an entire chapter to Drysdale right. because I think, um, uh, well, I, I think he's what Demi wanted to be. But I mean, right. to your point, the fact that um, that Gibson and McLean never faced each other and were running on parallel tracks uh, towards one another, and everyone at a certain point realized once the Tigers and Cardinals were running away with um, the pennant. And this, uh, you have to remember, this is the last year yeah. before uh, the playoff system was put in place. So at a certain point, everyone is looking forward to Gibson and McLean. And I don't think it would have quite worked if you had uh, just two pitchers who, you know, faced each other, who had been facing each other for a, a number of years. And so um, even though their two meetings of the World Series were not the great matchups that um, people anticipated, the fact that um, as the season went along, this is something to look forward to, um, uh, was, I think, created the, the, the tension within the book. Um, and the fact that they were so different. Um, uh, in a lot of ways, Drysdale had some Gibson in him, a fair amount of Gibson in him. And, you know, and 
but um, in fact, they were so different and played in uh, two different leagues and had captivated you know a country in in different ways. I think that um, had they played uh, in in the same league, I think uh, it wouldn't have worked. That's right. So I, you know, getting back to the baseball aspect of it, I've been trying to, to rack my brain thinking of another instance where a manager made the kind of move that Mayo Smith made before the World Series to take Mickey Stanley from center field and put him at shortstop. And I, I can't, in my mind, I mean, I guess to a certain extent, Pete Rose moving to third, but that was early in the season. You know, right. I think yeah, that was in not. May of 75. Yeah. So it's a little different. This was like two weeks before the World Series, and he takes a, a guy from a key defensive position and puts him at a, that position. And he, like, never played it much at all, right? I mean. I don't – yeah, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I mean, so Mayo Smith, I don't think, was the most astute baseball manager in, in history. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say this right now. But, uh, you know, he made moves during the series um, – that were, you know, were pivotal to the, the, the Tigers winning. But it, it, like you said, I don't think there's ever been um, in baseball history a move to go from moving your best center fielder, you know, uh, you know, uh, to uh, to shortstop. Uh, moving and again, those two positions can you can argue are, are the two most important positions in the field. Right. And the, the fact that he did it. And the fact that he didn't get any blowback from the team and that they were for it yeah. um, is, is pretty remarkable. And it worked. <laughs> I know. I just, it, 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 and as I say, I, just, I, I have literally been racked in my brain. You know, I guess occasionally maybe you move an outfielder to first base, but that's just not the same thing no. at all. It's just no, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's pretty, yeah. And I remember at the time, even as a kid, like that, that got a lot of attention. I mean, that was written about a lot and what a big, bold gamble it, it, it was. And it was. I mean, it could have blown up in – in his face, you know, really. I mean, and it seems like uh, Stanley fielded the position well and and performed, and, and it allowed K-Line to, to get in the lineup. But it, uh, that was that was just uh, an amazing little side note of that, that series that he, that he did that. Yeah, and, I mean, the fact that K-Line um, was able to get in after so many years of suffering and not being able to go to World Series, and he was hurt most of the year. Yeah and had resigned himself to not playing in the World Series, and they knew they needed him. And he came in and had a hell of a series. Mm. Uh, and so it worked. Um, I mean, everything just worked. It, it, it's kind of a miracle. <laughs> Schroeder, when you talk about in the, the title, I'm not sure if the title is, well, particularly the subhead, um, subtitle, it, the end of baseball's golden age when someone asks you what that means, how do you explain it? I mean, is that because is that because of, this is the pen, the, the last year of the pennant meaning, what it meant, or how do you characterize it? Uh, I characterize it in as a way. Uh, I guess when I when when you, if we're going to talk about the, the end of a golden age. I mean, number one, it's the golden age of uh, a certain kind of baseball. Um, uh, in terms of, of pitching, but also, I mean, and I deal with this in the book um, of baseball's real, really last year or its waning, uh, beginning of its waning stages um, as our national pastime. Because yeah. what you see by 1968 is football uh, taking over in a very, very big way. I mean, even though Super Bowl III was played in 1969, um, you can't underestimate the importance of Joe Namath and what he, what he meant to football and the rise of television and how football played into, uh, uh, into this medium that, that didn't understand baseball and uh, wasn't able to transmit it in, in a way, in the same way that, that football did and, and continues to do. That's very true. I'd never thought about that. That, I mean, you know, watching a baseball game on TV is one of the most boring things you could do, even if, even if you're a fan of the game. I mean, I'd much rather listen to it on the radio, or physically be there to see the game than just watch it on TV. Whereas a football game on TV, they totally can uh, play with the drama of it in terms of how they shoot it, and where the cameras are, and 
basically the pace of the game. You know, football's a proxy for war anyway, whereas baseball is like a whatever. People say this all the time, but it's a chess game or something. Out it's a proxy yeah. for baseball. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, baseball is a metaphor for baseball. I think, too, though, I think that, uh, the, to me, the 60s are the best decade of baseball for, I think, several reasons. Why I don't think it's fair to talk about uh, baseball before it was fully integrated as being a golden era. I mean, you simply excluded 50% or whatever of the population. And it really, it, and again, as we, as we noted, teams were slower to integrate. So really it was the 60s, I think, when it was a, a, a pretty fully integrated sport, but you still only had uh, 20 teams. Uh, you know, right. it didn't expand until 60, you know, 69, they 69 added four more, right. but you had some expansion in, in the 61 and 62, but that took it from 16 to 20. 20 teams is not, you can, you can have a lot of talent spread around 20 teams. It still was a national pastime. You know, good athletes were still gravitating towards baseball, less so probably than now with basketball and football. Plus a guy like Hank Aaron, great football player. Couldn't play it at Alabama. You know, I mean, it, right. playing at a state yeah. university in the South was not an option for a lot of these guys. So, and all that started to change. I, you know, I think so. I, I think, um, I think when I saw Golden Era, to me, it, it, it was as a decade, all of it sort of came together in the 60s, I think, in, in many ways. Yeah, I know. I mean, I have to agree. I mean, even if you even think about Kurt Flood yeah. uh, coming from Oakland, where uh, Frank Robinson and the number of other you know, uh, great baseball uh, uh, players uh, um, all emerge from. I mean, I don't know what, what sport they would uh, play today, quite frankly. Right. And, you know, the, the fact that the very best African-American athletes, you know, I mean, yes, uh, they, they play football, but, you know, baseball, baseball was first. And, and then as the decade wore on, it started to be less and less um, – um, as uh, become less of, uh, of that first option. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, Schroeder, who, um, um, of the people that you spoke to for the book, who were you most kind of like blown away by or taken with or just really surprised by um, in terms of just who you discovered or even who you spoke to? Well, I mean, um, I love talking to Jim Cott and Jim Lundborg and Mudcat Grant. Um, they were just phenomenal, not only in the recollection, um, and also because they were all very, very thoughtful and also actually engaged. Um, but, uh, you know, Jim Cott has a story uh, about, you know, following the King assassination, being in a car with Johnny Rosborough, uh, his African-American catcher, and he does not know what to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roseboro uh, just turns the conversation to a pitch that caught through. And then a guy like Jim Longborg, who um, you know went on to be a dentist, at Stanford educated, and all those kinds of stuff, who was um, who the Kennedys had befriended, or Mudcat Grant, who had endured so much um, growing up in the you know segregated South, and um, and then was a pupil of Saints and flourished under him, and then. Um, and you know, campaign for Kennedy. Right. But these were also guys who could uh, talk to me about pitching and talk to me about mechanics and and uh, you know the those aspects of the game and and uh, considerable uh, detail. I just uh, you know I soaked all that up. Um, were they nostalgic for it in a way? Like, is there stuff they miss about it? Um, I, I guess the act of pitching or the physical act of pitching that's different from that was different then than it is now? Um, I don't know whether they, they miss it, per se. Um, or, well, I'll take it back. You know, you know, at, you know in, if you're in your late 60s, early 70s, I don't think you want to be part of baseball. <laughs> but, um, you know, Cott in particular and I had an interesting conversation. He was also a Johnny Sane disciple. Right, um, right, and he and I and he and I talked about the importance that Sane would uh, 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 put on throwing, 
and you know building your arm and he'd actually talked to CC Sabathia about it uh, and CC said yeah I would love to throw more and the fact is the pitchers don't throw as much as they used to and it runs counter to everything that that Thane believed in and you know worked and so in that way um, you know it's they're not nostalgic for um, uh, I, I guess you know that that period in their, their lives but they also understood that you know perhaps you know the game was better off uh, for for players um, in, in different aspects and especially when it, when it came to uh, to pitching um, I mean one of the more interesting things I found was um, when we talked about these guys and the toughness that they had to exert I mean they had I mean they had to be tough because you know, they were working under um, diminished uh, labor situ- uh, circumstances. And the fact that Marvin Miller was uh, was emerging as a uh, uh, major force mm-hmm. um, and would eventually, eventually uh, help them um, was, was a big thing. But he, he wasn't there yet. And so um, you see a guy like Jim Maloney just uh, being belittled by uh, his manager Dave Bristol because – uh, because of his arm problems, and uh, I, you know, I found that sad. Right. Well, that, that you have an interesting riff in the book about the, the you know, the notion that, um, well, just the fact that the the damage these guys' bodies, you know, were put through, but the fact that it was very common for them to be expected to pitch all nine innings of a game, um, every which, game, which some of them could handle pretty well, and lots of them couldn't. Um, I mean, just just look at McLean, the damage that he'd done. I mean, you have that thing where he he hears the pop in his shoulder in like was it the '65 season, uh, and or '66, but I can't remember. And it's it's definitely before the '68 season. He goes on to win 32 yeah. games in 1968, right. uh, and is just in constant pain. You know, it's just like holy crap. I mean, I, it's it's astounding to believe that he was able to get up on the mound at all uh, in the World Series and throw what he was able to throw. Yeah, and the, actually, well, I mean, and the fact that he was essentially addicted to cortisone at that point and taking these shots and right. doing whatever he could to, to pitch. I mean, you can say a lot of things about Denny, but Denny was tough, mm-hmm. and he was ready to go out there. And by the World Series, if you actually look at, look at him, I mean, there's nothing there. There's absolutely nothing there in game one, and there was less in game four. Right. It sounded like four. He had nothing. As a, right. Yeah, no, he had nothing. And, I mean, even as the season was winding down, um, he himself had said, you know, there's something going on, something's not right. And, you know, I mean, look, he wanted to win 30 games because he had his own um, business interests at heart. But at the same time, um, you know, he still went out there and was expected to go out there. And Mayo Smith pitched him on uh, two days rest more than one. So, I mean, and that's one of the, uh, the more incredible things I found that uh, found um, that they were willing to, that uh, universally pitchers were, were willing to put their bodies through so much. He was, I was surprised that, A, he was only 24 years old, and B, if he was 24 years old in the big leagues today, he'd have a pitch count. Oh, no question. I mean, they, they, you know, they'd be thinking about shutting him down for yeah. a week or two in August, mm-hmm. and they'd probably be right. And he might have a 10, 15-year career. Sure. Um, yeah. But 24 years old and making $33,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So did anybody close to Gibson – tell you like what exactly Gibson's problem does he just not talk to anybody was it was it this particular project well I mean I had the great fortune of um, spending uh, time with uh, Rodney Weed who is his best friend uh, growing up in Omaha and to this day uh, there's a scene uh, I think in the epilogue where I go to to uh, see uh, Weed in, uh, in St. Louis, and he sort of was waving me off because he's talking in his car, and he gets out and says, man, that was Gibson. He will not shut up. And he, I say, well, except to me. <laughs> and, um, and then I was also fortunate to 
interview uh, Phil Pepe when he was still alive, who was Gibson's first uh, ghostwriter on his first autobiography, and then Lonnie Wheeler, who lives in the Cincinnati area, who's now, now done three books with Gibson, and um, they were able to uh, give me considerable, considerable insight into um, into uh, who he is and 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 sort of how he goes about things. Um, I mean, I think Lonnie told me because it's been built up over the years that he was such a, a fierce competitor and uh, you know displayed this kind of meanness on the mound. Um, he sort of kind of likes that and he kind of likes being left alone. And so. Um, I mean, it was unfortunate that he was uh, that I wasn't able to speak to him, but you know, I felt like I got as close as I was going to get. Oh yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Huh? That's it. it that's yeah, it. he just sounded like a very fierce competitor. I mean, uh, the way you write about the uh, what happened in Game One of World Series, where he just dominated, and it, every, all the quotes that you had from the book, all the Detroit Tigers just sound like. Wow, you know, like they were just completely like blown away by what they faced uh, coming off the mound. Um, that was just really impressive to me. I don't, I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, pitchers these days who do the same thing to opposing teams, but it just sounds like he was totally at the peak of his powers there. Maybe not the peak, maybe he was on the downslope, but I mean, he he gave it his all there uh, on the the first game and then won the fourth game as well of the World Series. Of course, that was the crazy rain game, and so they were <laughs> yeah. they were destroying yeah. the Tigers that time. But um, yeah, just I really uh, again having like I said at the beginning, not really being familiar with him. I want to go on YouTube and see whatever I can see of his windup and his pitch because it's you talk a lot, um, especially in the first half of the book, about his that people kind of thought of him as a wild pitcher that you know like he totally had massive control over his fastballs and his swerve. The combination of the slider and the curve, or whatever he could throw, but but that also, you know, he was not afraid of throwing the brushback pitch or just, you know, if the, if the ball came off a finger the wrong way, it suddenly was, you know, going by somebody's face instead of into the strike zone. I actually went to YouTube this afternoon just before it came, and I, I they had uh, game one in in full, and I didn't, I obviously didn't watch the whole thing, but I did watch the beginning of it. His first pitch was just. Not a, it wasn't a wild pitch, but it was way off the, the, the strike zone. It was, it was Dick McAuliffe, left-handed hitter, who kind of set up with this sort of open stance. And, I mean, McGarver had to reach to way the third out. base side yeah. to catch it. It really looked like nerves, and he settled down immediately. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> which, was, which was interesting. I think, I think Stanley, I think the second batter of Stanley just blew him away, uh, I think. And then, but, anyway, it was, it was pretty – I mean, did you watch all the games, Schroeder? Yeah, so one of the things <laughs> I had to do was, um, and I think now you can find them on YouTube, but at the time that I started, um, I had to uh, basically buy all the footage from Major League Baseball um, on DVD, and they had to dig them up. And actually, I have the Canadian broadcast. I mean, it's still NBC, but for these weird Canadian commercials in between, which is, which is pretty interesting. Um, and... To my earlier point about wanting to get the baseball right, um, I, I hired uh, a former baseball announcer um, and former uh, fellow Northwestern graduate to basically chart every pitch um, oh, no or the games wow. that I write about. So game one, game four, game five, and game seven. And you know he, he spent hours doing that, and then I had a spreadsheet to work from. And then I would watch it and write my own uh, and have my own descriptions and was able to work from his spreadsheet and from from what I observed. Um, and that was really important to me actually because um, I think so often in other baseball books you just describe you know it just sort of happens right. So you just have these series chapters and and say oh this happened and this and this and and for me I, I think those scenes and to make them um, um, as vivid as possible. I mean, that was really important to me because, uh, and, uh, because I think there's a tendency to just sort of brush by them. Do, do McCarver and Gibson, I guess they go down as one of the great catcher-pitcher combos of, of baseball history? Um, I think so. I mean, you know, uh, they, they got the three World Series together. Um, uh, there is, you know, there is an anecdote about McCarver going out to the mound and 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 Gibson yelling at him, saying, "You know, the only thing you know about pitching is you can't hit it." Right. Um, 
but you know they worked extremely they worked extremely well together and uh, and what they accomplished I don't think can be you know taken away. Um, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, and also I think it's certainly I mean um, maybe more importantly I think it's it's actually probably one of the best um, baseball friendships um, in history. Uh, huh. Just seeing the southern uh, uh, again. You know, son of a son of a policeman and from Memphis who had never, you know, even played against a black player, and um, you know, and, and you know, very quickly uh, taking to Gibson and, and uh, becoming his confidant, and you know, seeing this uh, true bond and love uh, form uh, between the, them, you know, I think it speaks to uh, something really great and something that um, uh, uh, that that this game can actually produce. That's true. Hey, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Oh, oh thanks so much. I really, um, I'm really looking forward to the event. Yeah, so am I. Yeah, me Coming too. up. Fantastic. See you, Schroeder. Thanks, Schroeder. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Thank you for joining us today on The 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We are available on the iTunes app on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib, period. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Jack Reiner, Jay Stowe, and Schroeder Papu. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.